I, I don't think very many people would agree on very many things right now, but I think most people would agree that when fear is dictating your reaction and your decision making, you're at best in a spiral. You're you're at best in in some kind of isolationist spiral, like where you you're trying not to let the world in, you're trying to minimize possibilities, and whenever you're doing that, you're playing a losing game. And that's not to say you shouldn't be planning, you shouldn't have redundancies. That's just common sense. But are, do you have redundancies to just like protect yourself from everything that's out there? Or do you have redundancies so that you can continue growing and innovating and maturing as a human being and individuating and making sense of your life? I mean, that that's the game that if we're meant to play any game, I believe that's the game that we're we're meant to play. Greetings, future fossils. I had an entirely separate plan for episode 161 of this, the podcast that explores our place in time. But my current place in time is being a pandemic parent to a toddler. (laughs) So the episode I intended for this week with Bitcoin evangelist Brandon Quittam and evolutionary biologist Toby Kears talking about fungal economies and how they relate to the new digital economy growing underfoot, as it were. That's going to have to wait. But luckily, I just had a delightful conversation with Michael Phillip, the host of Third Eye Drops, one of my great inspirations for getting into podcasting in the first place and someone whose show I absolutely adore. He invited me back onto Third Eye Drops this week, and so we ended up making this a kind of a swap cast. But it's actually a fabulous appetizer for what now will be episode 162. So I hope you'll subscribe and stay tuned for that. In this conversation, Michael Phillip and I explore the evolutionary and mythological perspectives on play. The relationship between structure and innovation, conservation and novelty. In order to investigate the principle which Silicon Valley has enshrined in information society, namely that of disruption, and to ask, when is change not enough, and when is it too much? We talk about the myth of Hermes, research on evolutionary fitness landscapes, the relationship between play and noise, and what that means for everyone surfing the volatility of the cryptocurrency market. Whether or not you are specifically interested in any of those things, I think you'll find a lot of really excellent high-level synthesis going on in this conversation that you can apply elsewhere in your life. And I'm really glad to have this conversation on record for personal reasons. Namely, it's helping me crystallize my thoughts about the two years overdue next chapter in my book, How to Live in the Future. The future is cute, playful, and noisy, which... I guess just couldn't have happened any sooner. It needed to happen when I had a toddler in the house. (laughs) Before we, as Michael Phillip would say, go wonder dipping in this fabulous conversation, I just want to thank every single person who has been supporting the show on Patreon, helping to guarantee its continued existence in an otherwise overworked life. And a special thanks to all of the new Patreon supporters for Future Fossils Podcast, without whom this show would not exist. So therefore, join me in a demonstration of appreciation 
for Elisa Stefaniak, Mate Donenberg, Clive Wilson, Shred Dead, Karja Signy, David Huber, Norm Ballinger, Christopher Orr, Amanda Bloodgood, and Danielle Johnson. Thank you so much. You are helping me get ever that much closer to the point where I can finally start paying my friends to help me edit and market this show. I'm really trying to make Future Fossils something that can support an entire community of people. And frankly, I would be doing a lot more with this show if I could offload some of the enormous work it takes on the back end to source, research, record, and edit all of these conversations. So if you really want to see this thrive, then the best thing you can do is join the Future Fossils Book Club on Patreon. We are one week out from the first live book club call of the year discussing Tyson Yunkaporta's amazing sand talk. And we will continue to have monthly book club calls throughout the year. You can go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and see a list of and acquire copies of all the books that we will be discussing this year. Patreon supporters also have exclusive access to the book club discussion channels that we run in our Discord server, which is where some of the juiciest and most meaningful conversations that come out of the work of this show actually happen. You also get early access to all of my new writing and my new music, which I was just telling a friend that I am so committed to producing the two concurrent unfinished musical albums I'm working on and sharing one song at a time because I purchased my copy of Ableton Live, the music production software, in 2016 by selling one Bitcoin for 600 bucks. That Bitcoin today is worth over $40,000. So if I don't do something meaningful, if I don't do something life-changing with that software, then I'll be kicking myself. But luckily, so far, the two albums, Age of Reunion and House Ship on a Hill, feel like some of the most important and resonant work I've done so far. I hope you'll drop on over to Patreon and check those out. Anyway, thanks for letting me run this quick ad. One more shout out before we begin to podscribe.ai, which does all of the machine-generated transcriptions for both Future Fossils, as well as the other podcasts I host for the Santa Fe Institute, Complexity Podcast. I am immensely grateful to Pete Bersinger at podscribe.ai for helping me render this show into text so that I can complete a second book project, Selected Transcripts from the most profound and penetrating conversations that we've had on this show. If you would like to help me edit these transcripts, Podscribe does an extraordinary job of real-time machine transcription, but they do need a little dusting up. So if you're one of these people for whom editing a transcript helps you with your comprehension, then please holler at me, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com, and I would love to fold you into the tiny nucleus of awesome people whom I will thank profusely in the acknowledgments when this book comes out. And the last thing I'll say before we dive in is that the show notes for this episode are unusually epic and full of amazing reading and listening and viewing resources. I highly recommend that you look them up. If you're inspired by this conversation, you can go much deeper into this material and join me down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Thanks everyone for listening. Keep your chins up, keep your hearts lifted, 
reach out whenever you like. Hopefully I'll see you in the Discord server. Enjoy. Michael, it's been a while since you've been in the mind meld, my friend. I, I, I really, I, I don't really know why. It's just time moves. You get into grooves, and suddenly it's X amount of months later. But here oh, we yeah. are, where where we belong, coalescing together to hopefully give birth to some sort of beautiful dialectic. Yeah, no, I know why it's it's been so long. <laughs> It's just because I have I have been grinding myself to the bone, as I'm sure many of your listeners have over the last. Those of us who have stayed employed through all of this insanity, mm-hmm. I think, have been worked much harder than we ever thought possible. And I haven't given as much time to, to my podcast or, uh, frankly, to either of them, even the one I'm doing for work. Or to anyone else's over the last year, and I, I'm really as I would like. So, and you had a fucking child, so it's like you're you're getting worked. You're getting worked from multiple angles. You're getting worked by the collective stress of the world. You're getting worked literally by your job. You're getting worked by daily obligations. So, maybe a way to face this away from all of that is: Are you still finding time for? the classical Garfieldian wonder dips? Are you still (laughs) interfacing with ideas that inspire and amaze and stoke your curiosity? You know, that's the sort of, we we talked about this a little bit, I think, before we started recording, but one of the things that I find kind of most challenging about the situation is that I, I think I chose my job for intellectual stimulation reasons. And So, you know, getting to work at a place where discoveries are happening and great insights are being made, it's very satisfying to me. And to get to host a a podcast for those scientists is really satisfying in in that way. I'm I'm dipping wonder all the time. But Mm -hmm. um, at a nonprofit academic salary where it's like, okay, if if I want to really play a long game and and it's weird because I, I got into these conversations with my dad a lot when i was younger about like well if you love your job why are you so eager to retire <laughs> you know yeah and it's i think you know that the question of how do i uh you know you and i wanted to talk about play today and i think if we're to offer something really practical for listeners in this conversation, then the question that it has been really on my mind a lot lately is i feel like i am very naturally and enthusiastically an improviser. And there are, as we will discuss, great benefits to improvisation and to play for anyone, for any organization, for each of us personally. And yet, because of the nature, the structure, the dynamics of networks, innovation is often suppressed, actively suppressed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this boils up at this point of tension for me and for many, many of the people I know, in terms of how do you 
be a, and there's actually a website for this rebels at work. How do you be a like volcanic wonder dipping font of inspiration and fresh Mm -hmm. ideas Mm -hmm. without being an unwanted distraction without being considered, you know, without getting uninvited to strategic meetings? How do you sell yourself as someone that is of value to a, a group, to a team, a, you know, a family, or whatever, uh, you know, a particular system in which you are participating? Mm. And how do you identify the value of, of play? So, as yeah. the so-called bummer of the art world, as I was, <laughs> I was called yeah. once. Um, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. How the you know, you said it's actively suppressed. Sometimes play and disruption are actively suppressed. And then by proxy, innovation is inadvertently suppressed. And it reminds me how we were talking a little bit about that book, The Trickster Makes the World, the other day. And what's interesting is that, and, and I'll connect these dots as I'm babbling here, <laughs> is that the inertia of culture and a pre-established way of doing things and symbol systems and different, you know, hierarchical mediaries for making things happen start to blind you after a while. It's not that they're necessarily bad or that they're preying upon people's creativity. It's that you lose the ability to be creative because all you can do is see the pre-established system. And then this is where that trickster energy becomes really vital because you lose the ability to innovate if you're stuck in these pre-established Apollonic structures, you know. And this is my favorite way that this is highlighted is in this myth of Hermes stealing Apollo's cattle. And I got really lucky, man. I I got kind of synchronistically lucky in choosing to highlight this myth in uh, a chapter of the book that I'm writing, because it turns out that I I didn't realize how rich this myth was. Like it was just, it was just going to be a way to demonstrate how mischief eventually leads to sort of unforeseen circumstances and and elevating yourself in ways that you didn't anticipate. But it winds up being a symbolic allegory for the very act of disruption, for the very <laughs> act of, of, of countercultural innovation. And the reason that it is, is, is you, you don't get this full picture until you really start to read more deeply into who, who and what Apollo is and who and what Hermes is. And who and what Apollo is, is the golden prince of order. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he is the light that shines down on the world and sees everything. You can't hide anything from him. He's a prophet because he knows the mind of Zeus. But he's like the prince of the world. He's the god that the oracles at Delphi are querying when they go into their trance. It's, it's a, a temple to Apollo. So he is like, you don't pull anything over on him. He knows everything. Ozymandias he, in The Watchmen. Yeah, true, true. Yes, yes. So, but yet here comes a infant who comes and does something and does trick him and starts leaving symbols on the path that he takes that confuse him, which should not be possible, right? It should not be possible to fool the master of symbols with symbols. But he's able to do it because he's creating shit on the fly. He's doing things that don't exist. He's subverting things. You know, he's making sacrifices of the cattle and using pieces of meat 
to represent all the gods, but he adds one for himself. You know, he, he doesn't have permission to do this, but he just starts doing these things. And because he does those things, the only thing Apollo is sure of is that he must be dealing with a god. He must be dealing of something on his level. And now I'm getting into a little bit of, of hazy territory that might not be relevant. But th- that's what I'm saying is like, you don't understand the value of disruption when you're so ensconced in the pre-established way order kingdom culture of doing things but it's very needed it's very needed and you only i think get that through play and through questioning and through poking at structures well i mean to be fair because i think it's important to i'm a big fan of taking the being the devil's advocate taking that position Mm -hmm. i was born with a retrograde mercury which i think speaks directly to your uh allegorical drop in there you know this is astrologically speaking this is somebody who is at their best a skilled translator and innovator and and at their work you know because they're thinking about this stuff you know it's introspection and and reflection and and the non-linear play of symbols and communication and movement you know wearing the uh you know creating the backwards footsteps so that it looks like you led the cattle in the other direction Yes, this very is part tenet. Of this myth. Yeah. Although maybe yes. we should save that for when you show up on Future Fossils to talk tenet. Um, yeah, but, that'd be great, man. That'd be great. But um, yeah, there's something in that I think that is costly in the short term. You know, and it, and it is. You know, you think about the structures that are disrupted, and I think it's important to note that the Silicon Valley rhetoric of disruption is very short sighted. And has caused a lot of damage because it's easy for a human being to see, oh, well, this should be fixed, but you don't realize the 10 other things that are dependent on that broken mm-hmm. thing working the way that it, uh, that it does, you know, or, you know, that, yeah. that if you fix something here, it's going to break something somewhere else. Right. So that is, I think the inherent evil in this, there's another evil, which is that innovations tend to precipitate new problems and those new problems tend to come faster and faster in a ratcheting escalating cycle of innovation and, and crisis and so just like me right right like <laughs> i think everyone can relate to that so there's no i i was trying to make a crass joke there but anyway you'll re- you'll reflect on it when you if you if you listen back oh it's will, too late yeah. anyway so yeah so the you know there's two problems one is that you fix something and it breaks something else right It's like transhumanists that want to talk about, you know, like changing the molecules that are swimming around in our blood. And it's like, oh, yeah, you might want to like cure cancer, but you don't even know about like the super cancer nightmare. I mean, this is the Jurassic Park thing. This is why I'm constantly hammering on on Jurassic Park as the allegory for our age, you know, because Mm. these nonlinear second, third order consequences are very, I mean, they are by their nature impossible to predict. And so at any rate, like, you know, part of, part of me wants to tell the story of a future in which we recognize the value of play and, and companies have a department of internal disruption and, you know, people are hired for their abilities to pivot. I submitted an essay about that to my employers at the SFI when we were doing an essay series on the coronavirus pandemic 
last spring. And the essay was denied for jumping around too much, which I thought was kind of structurally hilarious because it was about the way that, and we've talked about this on the show, on your show and mine, the way that the methods by which we encode someone's expertise mm-hmm. are not as effective during a crisis because, hmm, you know, you sense. get, yeah. you get, how did, there was a great quote I stumbled on recently that I had to add to the end of this essay. Eric Hoffer says, in times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. So wait though. So isn't, isn't that a little bit antithetical to the idea that we need to not disrupt structures and we need to rather Im- improve them because I-, I feel like that's where you started. What was you know a lot of evil also comes from disruption, but now mm-hmm. you're also saying that in a crisis, which you know inherently changes the world, requires disruptive thinkers. So it requires disruptive thinkers in order to integrate the change. And I think yes. this is where yes. I think this yes. is the this is the middle way here because yes, I feel yes, like. Yes, yes. I feel like a truly mature generalist, which I'm trying to be in 2021, <laughs> is somebody that actually does appreciate the structure. Uh, as my friend Mitch Mignano coined the term psychedelic conservative to mean like one of these people <laughs> that encourages you to go in there, but to keep your eyes open, you know, to keep your attention in your feet, to stay rooted and like remember that you have bones and that kind of thing. And I think that. Yeah, so there are evils on both sides because the the real evil in a kind of like uh, Aristotelian balance, you yeah. know, you're looking for the golden mean, right? So you're looking yep. for how much innovation can the system actually tolerate? Do not pursue this ideologically. But also, I was Arthur C. Clarke's first law of the three Clarke's laws is if an elderly distinguished scientist tells you something is impossible, they're probably wrong. And so you have to think on multiple time scales at once and yeah. you have to you have to kind of integrate the incentives that are afforded to you by a society or by an mm-hmm. institution or by a family for short term and long term activities. Yeah. And you have and I feel like because the incentive structures in our society are so completely pathological right now and mm-hmm. you know in my opinion the big question is how do we re-engineer incentives so that we do acknowledge that scaling our networks delivers gains through efficiency, uh, at, but those efficiencies make things more brittle, and that there are ways in which we actually want to build in inefficiencies, again, play, noise. We want to build those in yeah. because it's like building a wood and paper house on the islands of Japan instead of a concrete house. Like You know that there will be earthquakes, you know, you know there will be tsunamis, so you put tsunami stones and you build in bamboo because, again, it's like this is one of those things where it's like the the faster the world turns, the more the turbulent nonlinear dynamics of the ontologies of Eastern philosophy become apparent in the Western industrial milieu or post-industrial milieu, right? So, so uh, I think I'm turning Japanese. Basically, <laughs> right? Like, oh man, I hope I, I, not, because because they're <laughs> the masters of like taking, you know, what works, and then being like, oh, so you use these structures, and you, you know, you're going to kind of funnel us into conducting business 
in your way. Well, we're going to take your way and we're going to do it even harder and optimize it even more and work longer than you even think is possible to the point where we literally have special words for killing yourself due to working too hard. You know, it's like that. But, but at the same time, they're, they're also, it, it's interesting, man, because this is a total aside because I want to stay on this, this thread that, that we were just on of disruption and figuring out how to create a synthesis of disruption and the structure and i have some some thoughts on this but you know have as you might remember i lived there for a while and the the constant tension of ancient and and modern there and you know kind of more open-ended buddhist romantic philosophy but then like stringent hardcore capitalistic efficiencies is really it's 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 an interesting thing to to look at collectively in the japanese psyche but i want to go back i want to go back to this idea because because you wound up exactly where i was going to go is that the mature disruptor trickster doesn't just destroy shit and walk away and that's actually i think the the missing point that a lot of people don't remember from this cattle stealing myth. And it, maybe I should just tell the story in like a one minute oh, yeah. kind of summary so people so people know. So Hermes is born. He's a bastard son of Zeus and a nymph. So he he's not human, but he's not quite a full god either. You know, he's living in a cave with his mother, who lives in a cave, by the way, because she was trying to stay out of the Olympian equation altogether. But Zeus would still come down and, and do his thing with her at night. So it's like being a she, signal user. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get caught up in in something no matter what. And uh, so he's born. He immediately has a thirst for mischief. He wants he he's hungry for meat. He wants to go out and get meat. So if he's going to get meat, it might as well be the me- best meat. So he finds out the best meat is Apollo's cattle, um which by the way are immortal. They're not to be eaten. All of these, you know, different qualities that shouldn't even exist. So he he went he winds up stealing the cattle. He does all of these things to cover his tracks you know he enchants them in various ways you mentioned he makes them walk backwards he you know he bribes an onlooker he does all of these things sacrifices a couple of them he also it's important to note sees a turtle and lewis hyde the author of that of that book trickster makes this world uh that we were talking about says that when he saw the turtle he knew like the same way you know something when you share a sexy look across the room with someone, he 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 looked at this turtle and knew instantly how to make the first li- uh, liar. I think that's what how what it's called. The so he's first the first entrepreneur. Str- yeah, yeah, yeah. So this like stringed instrument, and that this comes. It's important because it comes into play later. So anyway, he steals the cattle. Apollo immediately knows something is up, but doesn't understand what's going on because you know for the reasons I mentioned earlier. But he also, through that, deduces that this has to be some kind of Olympian being. This has to be some kind of, you know, godly being. Otherwise, he would clearly know what's going on. So he eventually tracks Hermes back to his house and he's playing the baby card. I'm like, I'm just a baby. I, you know, the, the, the soles of my feet couldn't even handle being out there, let alone could I do what you're describing. 
So they argue for a while, and then Hermes says, well, if you're so sure, why don't, why don't we go to our father, Zeus, because he's both of their fathers, and we'll let him settle this. So they go argue in front of him, have this kind of impromptu trial. Zeus thinks it's really funny, but ultimately agrees that Hermes is guilty of this crime. And, you know, there's all these threats levied by Apollo, like, I'll throw you into the pit of Tartarus, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. But two things happen. Through this whole drama, he starts to be kind of enchanted with the kid and thinks he's like pretty enterprising and smart. And the second thing is he sees the liar and he's like, holy shit, what is this thing? I, you know, he's just growing more and more enchanted by it. He hears Hermes play it and he describes this crazy feeling that comes over him when he hears it. So ultimately, he decides to forgive him of his crimes if he'll give him the liar. And not only does he forgive him of his crimes, he gives him the rod, which is the symbolic of being the divine cattle owner. So he inherits the cattle and he's made a full member of the Olympian pantheon. So it's through this act of defiance and innovation that he becomes part of the pre-existing structure and he makes peace with the pre-existing structure. And now he begins to serve roles that were part of the structure and in some cases, new roles. So the, the end insight, one of the end insights of this myth is that what is at first disruptive, criminal, mischievous, may wind up being an important, indispensable part of the system that didn't exist before. And I have another ex- practical example of that I'd love to get into with you. But Please. but that but that's where I was ultimately going to. You know, you're talking about that there needs to be this sort of mature integration of the disruption that serves the pre-existing system because the you know you basically have should we really burn this whole fucking thing to the ground is really the question we're asking or do we need to fix elements of it add elements of it evolve it you know and i think that in most cases evolving what already exists is the best option. But sometimes you have to do something so noisy and countercultural on the outside for people to pay attention to the thing that it at first seems like a complete scourge or it seems like a complete, completely counter to the well-being of the whole. So, uh, and I think that's what happened in Hermes' case. I mean, he was willing to go hard you know he was willing to just defy you know every sacred symbol and whatever to lift himself up to the level of a god and it all ultimately wound up working for him yeah so there's a lot in there and it's it's my delight to try and bridge that to questions that have been on my mind for years because it is funny because i i go back to uh i'll share for you in the show notes a um talk i gave at burning man in 2013 that started with this question about how visionary culture and the psychedelic movement are being appropriated. I mean, this was a few years before the question of like psychedelic industry really fruited in any sense, but it was already years and years after the aesthetic of the psychedelic movement in the sixties was appropriated by like Campbell's soup and and Levi's jeans (laughs) and the, you know, psychedelia, as this sort of like lowbrow 
stoner kind of thing rather than it's you know the way that it would have preferred to be understood as as that kind of hermetic permanent synthetic revolution was integrated you know and and i've i've heard a lot of people you know the, this is the thing about quote unquote capitalism but i don't even like to think about it in the, in in the that limited of a sense you know working at the santa fe mm-hmm. institute they're always looking for fundamentals and hidden universal patterns mm-hmm. and i really mm-hmm. i think it's much better to talk about it in terms of uh, metabolisms anytime there's a crisis of uh, an atmospheric pollution, like oxygen flooding the atmosphere 2 billion years ago when everything was anaerobic, you know, all the bacteria were just poisoned by oxygen. And so you, you come up with a strategy, you find a new metabolism that, that integrates oxygen. I feel like that's sort of what happened to 60s counterculture was that you can look at it in the sort of more optimistic way that right. you just outlined that like yes it's a you know we've it's a permanent stable revolution it's it's achieved something it's created a new plateau from which we build and then there's another sense in which it's just getting you know absorbed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. into this this malevolent steamroller of a process but that- but here's what keeps the trickster relevant is the trickster is not that those symbols that get metabolized you know he he's not the 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 language of hippies and popular symbolism that people used to use to represent it it's the thing behind that that will always fucking strike again you know will always strike again in the unforeseen way that that is always always true that whether for good or for bad that that orthogonal uppercut comes in that that no one could have expected and you know it could be and this happens in all arenas of life i mean covid was one of these it could be you know maybe that was the the trickster at his most raging or something <laughs> but um but pan. so it, yeah and well pan and and hermes are sometimes equated as well so mm-hmm. but but continue i didn't mean to cut you off well, now I got a bagel in my mouth because you were on a good riff there, and I figured <laughs> okay. I had a minute. Well, well, here's 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 where I wh- what I said I where I said I wanted to connect a dot to something else is what is more outside the stream of authority and countercultural and cattle stealing than crypto, like that industry. That act of creating Bitcoin, of letting loose the first blockchain, is the most consequential action of cattle stealing I've seen in my lifetime. And Mm. what I mean by that is you took something of value and said, yeah, you you have cornered the market on value, but I'm going to come in, take the principles of your value, subvert it completely, and say, now this has value. And what are you going to do about it? And here we are, literally as we speak, at the height of that act becoming part of the pantheon, becoming institutionalized, becoming accepted, (laughs) watching the authorities, you know, sure, banks, you can handle crypto, you can trade crypto, you can, you know, you can do your, we're going to, we're going to integrate Chainlink and Ethereum, you know, like we're watching it become part of the Pantheon as we speak right now. That's hilarious. And- I was, I was just going through the KYC to open a crypto.com account before I got on the call with you. Yeah. 
because they served yeah. me an, an ad on Twitter that's like, get 8% back on our, our new <laughs> card. And I was right. like, oh, shit, right. 8%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, that's so- how mundane is that, right? You know, how far is that from the radical libertarian cypherpunk ethos of the, mm-hmm. the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper? Like, unbelievable. It is. But at the same time, that world still exists for you. You can still do everything through a VPN. You can still hold everything in a in a currency that's completely obscured. You can if you if you want to stay there, you can stay there. But meanwhile, the, you know, the milk and honey flows like everybody wants their percentage. Everybody wants their piece. Institutions are, are FOMOing in like crazy because now that act of elevating itself to this to the new shiny member of the Pantheon is beginning to hit its peak. You know, it's all right, beginning I, to. All right. You got to let me bust in here because this is just, yeah, of course, this is just it. So. So, yes, this speaks exactly to what I wanted to talk about. And I'm glad that you gave such a meaty example because what I wanted to say about, I wanted to make this, this distinction. And when we're talking about the balance, because there are, there are moments, if you imagine sailing across an ocean of possibility, right? Like this term, the evolutionary fitness landscape, this, the the idea of rugged mathematical landscapes of probabilities, this was one of the things that SFI helped introduce in the 1980s and, and 90s. I had Stuart Kaufman on my show to talk about in Future Fossils 125, if people are interested in that. And the the whole idea being that uh, I, I encountered this actually first in Richard Dawkins' Climbing Mount Improbable, which I think is a fantastic book, even if you find Dawkins to be a, a damnable bore and, <laughs> and socially malevolent human being at this point. Those original evolutionary writings he did were just totally sublime. And the idea is that there are opportunities, you know, affordances, if you want to talk about it in design terms, made by our anatomy and the, the functional relationships between our anatomy and the environment. And that creates certain ways of relating to the world. You know, you want to think about this in like terms of UI design. This is, you know, UI design is, is the same property of evolutionary dynamics and our modeling of them unfolding in, in a kind of human time scale where, you know, you, you think about you know, how many times do you bend over and pick up the phone in a particular way and like execute this particular thought pattern with your thumb? And that becomes like over time, you know, that becomes a, a, a measurable dis- difference in, in your movements through the day and so on. And, and evolutionary timescales, this is shaping a landscape whereby, for example, a, a giant squid has the biggest eyes in the world. But it doesn't actually navigate the deep, lightless ocean as well as a sonar-using whale. And yet, the, there's no, that thing is on what it, computer scientists call a local optimum, right? It's as good as it's going to get for the squid. And so it's stuck in a forever losing position against the whale, ultimately, on, like, on average, because the whale's always got the jump on the squid. And so this question of like, because you have to go down in fitness. Again, this is like, you have to have a disruptive innovation and more mutations break an organism than improve it, right? This is the whole point. So this is a a big critique by self-declared theorists of creation science about evolutionary biology is they're saying, how does change even happen? Mm -hmm. Like they can't imagine that change does happen because it looks like you always have to get worse before you can get better. 
And yet that's not actually true because the landscape is like infinitely dimensional. There are ways in which it's too costly to improve in most ways, but then there's like that one little bridge or backdoor and the landscape itself is changing. This is the key point. Uh, yeah, thanks yeah. for indulging this rant. The key point is that the landscape itself is not static and every change that every organism makes is changing the landscape. So this is, this is the reason why it's important to think about history as like an impossibly complex, massive parallel computation unfolding at multiple timescales simultaneously, you know? And so in light of that, there are places in that sort of massive matrix of collective computations that are for the scale that they're operating at faster or, or slower than the average that you would expect based on their, their size and the frequency. And so in those moments, like an earthquake and in those ways, like the, the geological underpinning of a Japanese town, there are many other ways in which, like you pointed out, those, the culturally, those towns are extremely stable Perhaps the um, personality profiles of individuals there are stable. Perhaps this is in some way helping with the robustness against instability in other dimensions of their lives, right? You know, this is like a mathematical underpinning for stuff like future shock, where it's like people need some kind of stability. And if it can't have it here, it's mm-hmm. going to bloom along a different axis, like squishing dough out from between two books. So at any rate, <laughs> the, the, uh, the idea being that like that trickster myth is true of a world that is static. But I think something in the the retrograde Mercury disposition I hold sees this in more in terms of the world itself is changing too quickly. And our duty yeah. it, as disruptors is in some way actually like the inverse, like a form of psychedelic harm reduction where introspection uh, or like the innovations that that we need, it's it have to be sort of directed and, and focused in an yeah. intentional way, in a way that they weren't by that initiatic archetype. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap that, like I feel like the difference is that you know the waters on which Hermes was originally sailing were relatively smooth, and the evolutionary landscape now has come to a boil. And it's very hard to tell which way the wind is blowing. And so, you know, when you talk about crypto, it's about harvesting volatility right now. Like the real, the real, the people that are really winning in that system are not turned off by the volatility, but are actually thriving because of it. And those Mm -hmm. people are bot trading. And, you know, I just like, I have to speak to this because I realized in 2018, after having my ass handed to me, in in like my yeah attempts that, at that, retail yeah there's rough. your rite of passage there's right. your rite of passage I realized I there too <laughs> that the economy is designed for volatility and that it benefits people that can automate their trades and that this is on top of like other uh, trading strategies it it has to do with the fact is. You know, a lot of this like nonlinear dynamics talks about like sand piles and avalanches and the way that flows distribute themselves fractally in order to diffuse energy through a system. And, and that's what's going on here in the financial system. And so it's creating all of these, you know, we finally found that the way that the, the world economy can not just have arteries, but also like veins and capillaries. And so yeah, it's yeah, created yeah. this massive cascade of wealth that we're watching, like a, this massive sand pile collapse into the crypto space. And you're going to want 
that many different layers of flow and of of like turbulence in the world economy for it to work at all. And so the people that are thriving amidst crypto, I think, recognize that we're at a point like William Irwin Thompson, this is the very last thing. Uh, <laughs> William Irwin Thompson in his Schumacher series, if you go to the, the Schumacher Center for New Economics, the Lindisfarne Association, which was founded by Bill Thompson in, in the 70s, has an enormous archive of excellent talks that I binged in, while driving around the country on, on tour in 2013. And and it's his, the entire series there on the like history and archaeology of consciousness, the, the time falling bodies take to light, which uh, maybe you've talked about with Jeremy Johnson. I don't know. But at any rate, he in there, he talks about the whole Babylonian mythos, as well as the Old Testament, and how you mm. you see these god turnovers. This is also true in ancient Greece, where the the new gods are smaller and faster and more corporeal, somehow lower in ontological status than those of the existing cosmic order. Um, actually, we're talking about this on Future Fossils in the episode I'm just about to put out on his dark materials, because there's the whole thing with the mm-hmm. angels and the humans mm-hmm. and so on. Anyway, so each generation, each new fall, which is like the, um, there's like a, a flippening, if you will, <laughs> yeah, where the new system comes online and it's it's smaller and faster and scarier than the predecessor. Actually, WJT Mitchell talks about this in an essay. I'll link you for the show notes. Uh, the work of art in the age of biomechanical reproduction, where he talks about the shift in emphasis from T-Rex to velociraptors in dinosaur movies uh, as part of like the, the whole conversation around uh, genetic engineering being a much, much faster industrial revolution than, than uh, the previous iterations. But at any rate, that's us. We're standing on the cusp of this and we're afraid of AI and we're afraid of our gene modified creations and offspring. And in light of all of that, we're just living in a world where I feel like we can safely say that there's been a phase transition from a, a computable to an uncomputable future. The, you know, the, the information that we, that we get about the trajectories that we're on is too noisy for us to actually, actually try and and predict what's going on, at least at scales that matter to us as human beings. And because Mm -hmm. of that, I was talking with Chris Moore on Complexity Podcast about this. We were asking the wrong kinds of questions. We we think that we're uh capable of predicting and and, but the you know it's just like we we have to be asking ourselves deeper questions about not only the models we're using but but like whether we're even pointed in the right direction. And so with crypto it's just I think it's scary for most people, actually. I think once you get over the thrill of p- possibly making enough money to retire in this crazy world, <laughs> which I think is what animates most of the people I know in our age cohort that that are into this, they're like, oh, this is maybe your only chance of solvency as, a, as an elderly person. <laughs> the deeper sort of what you're banking on or what you're unbanking on with crypto is actually something that is sort of deeply worrisome which is this accelerationist you know movement into a space where machines really do run rule the human world and i think it's going to be as as friendly a transition as any previous transition has but when you look at the mythological substrate for those transitions it's it's like rather ominous you know it's like the angels getting kicked out of heaven and shit like that <laughs> mm. so anyway and epic rant thank you so much for indulging that one yeah, lots of sinew there, and lot. Well, sinew is actually the sort of 
thing that I think is being established right now between, you know, that pre-existing order and the disruptive thing. Because you gave so many examples there of a lot of things, but also disruption and integration. Like I sort of am feeling like the balance of disruption and integration is is what we are at least obliquely belaboring here on and off throughout the conversation. And, you know, whether we're talking about like a flippening between ancient deities or the monetary system or whatever, I, from the outside looking in, am actually excited by it because I am not a hardcore adherent of any of the above. What I am is somebody who takes joy in the excitement of new things emerging and figuring out where my role is or how I can contribute or how I can gain or how I can learn or or whatever it is from these novel developments. And another example that I that I think is interesting that that fits here is let's let's stick with this I the this sort of mytho poetic version of what we're talking about. So the idea of gods changing. Well if you're a hardcore worshipper of fucking Thoth and then the Greeks come into Alexandria and they say, well you know we're we're really interested in 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 your gods and these are awesome and and we think that there's equivalency between Thoth and Hermes and they start drawing equivalencies in this archetype which actually is what they did you know in in ancient alexandria the greeks were were okay with the idea of integrating their gods with egyptian gods because what was important to them was the wisdom of the archetype. Like they had a word like archaios or something like that. I could be getting this wrong. But if you are a hardcore adherent of Thoth and you don't want any new information coming in, you're trying to clamp down. You're trying to pretend this isn't real. You're trying to poke holes. But meanwhile, the, it's it's already a foregone conclusion. The energy is flowing. Change is happening. People are are talking about it writings about Hermes Trismegistus are emerging, which is sort of seen as the synthesis of these two strains of thought often. So really what it comes down to is, do you look at these types of moments as opportunities or do you cry about the change? And and I think you have to maintain that open-ended, excited, perennially agnostic, yet wonder-facing view or you're going to be playing a losing game of always trying to maintain something that isn't just, you know, you, you're going to see it as a something that's eroding while you have the opportunity to see it as something that's evolving and changing. And I think that's the difference between people who are excited and scared. You know, I think that's and, and everybody's going to have a measure. It's not one or the other. But that's the difference between being more excited than you are scared. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and, yeah. and that's where I try to stay. I try to stay in that area where, yeah, it is scary because you talked about it being this scary, you know, crypto in general, being this scary thing. And it is a scary thing. I mean, dude, I'm scared looking at my portfolio every day, but I'm more excited than I am scared. Well, I mean, that's the argument that I was having with Michael Dowd when Michael Dowd came on my show. Have you have you tracked his stuff at all? Mm-mm, not familiar. So he's a an ecumenical minister who for years was doing like 
this relentless uh, tour circuit to congregations around the U.S. and probably I think also Canada, preaching evolutionary theory, like trying to get people behind the science and how it relates to a sort of Gaian, sacred, you know, very mm-hmm. sort of uh, Laudato Si, you know, Pope Francis kind of mentality, very Franciscan in, in general. And I say that there are like literal sculptures of St. Francis, like all over my neighborhood here in Santa Fe. Uh, Interesting. But, you know, so I'm, I'm very for it. But he transitioned at some point because he'd read enough sort of climate doom stuff that he pivoted to like trying to help people sober up and take a more stoic position, grieve what needs to be grieved, mm-hmm. and then celebrate with the remainder. And, you know, and he's turning to like practical concerns. He's paying more attention to like, how can we prevent, you know, what he sees as inevitable collapse from being worse than it has to be. And, you know, it's like very difficult to have a conversation with a guy like this as a young parent, let me tell you. Um, but, I feel like you do have to stare that that shit in the face. And like you said, sit there and grow until the space that you can accommodate is big enough that your enthusiasm for the, the, the life that you have and the life that you have left is greater than the fear, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, man, I, I don't think very many people would agree on very many things right now, but... I think most people would agree that when fear is dictating your reaction and your decision making, you're at best in a spiral. You're you're at best in in some kind of isolationist spiral, like where you you're trying not to let the world in, you're trying to minimize possibilities, and whenever you're doing that, you're playing a losing game. And that's not to say you shouldn't be planning, you shouldn't have redundancies. That's just common sense. But, you know, are, are do you have redundancies to just like protect yourself from everything that's out there? Or do you have redundancies so that you can continue growing and innovating and maturing as a human being and individuating and making sense of your life? I mean, that that's the game that if we're meant to play any game, I believe that's the game that we're we're meant to play. But that that kind of speaks to what originally was the larger ethos of this conversation, supposedly, just based off of a text message. It wasn't like a really planned thing. But you had sent me this article about play, and it's it, it's a more scholarly article. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to read this. I'm getting into you know all of this trickster mythos. And also, I have a whole chapter of my book about how profound game playing is, like even from mythological, ontological sorts of points of view, how profound game playing is. And that is this thing that's constantly diminished. And, you know, we're, we're looking as human beings for the thing, the truth, the baseline level of reality, whether it's a, some kind of transcendental string or transcendental eight-dimensional crystal structure or whatever it is. We're looking for the thing. Because we think that if we find the thing, then we're going to understand reality. And we're not, you know, meanwhile, we're just playing all of these other games with material and and whatever. And we're using axiomatic systems, but we really don't know what the truth is. But if we could only find the truth, we're really going to be, you know, somehow satisfied or have some kind of a breakthrough. But when you begin to see the, the wisdom 
of the game and that everything we do really can be a game. There's a lot of profundity there, but I don't actually even know what this article you sent me is about because I forgot to read it. <laughs> but so how does that how does that article fit in? What is the sort of argument there about the why play is important? Oh, yeah. So Andreas Wagner of the, the Wagner Evolution Lab, he's uh, I think he's at Max Planck, but he's an SFI external professor. He wrote a book about evolution and creativity, and he's actually written a few of them. And this is an excerpt from his latest on the evolutionary fitness landscape. And what he finds is he gives all these examples from the increased life expectancy of wild animals if they're engaged in more than less play. It's it's especially true of properties of young nervous systems and young organizations. If you want to think about it like that, like that's the volatile that's the volatility harvesting going on right there, right? Like your while your nervous system is still young and very noisy, you're learning how to use your body. These are important times to allow for that noise, to allow for for the, the making errors, and that's why children are, are rubbery. You know, <laughs> I mean, he doesn't—he doesn't quite get into it like that. But you know, it has to do with this evolutionary fitness landscape. He finds because he—that noise allows you to jitter and possibly accidentally move the ball, you know, up a fitness hill or like you know down a energy minimizing valley, depending on how you model it. You know, that's the whole point: is that all this stuff is metabolic. It's not just informational. Whether you're going uphill or downhill, it depends on the metabolic costs. And, and so interestingly, I, we didn't get, he doesn't get into this in the article, but I think it's worth bringing up because I think it's worth bringing up at any opportunity. One of the first talks that I saw at SFI back in 2018 that blew my mind was by this uh, Adi Livnat of Haifa University in Israel, who was pointing out that gene regulatory complexes that are expressed together are more likely to fuse and become like a single gene either like physically or just in terms of their regulatory activity and that this is the same as hebbian learning in the brain which is you know fire together wire together which is habit building in the brain so what 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 he's saying basically is that the same process is governing machine learning you know at least like neural networks and like the kind of machine learning that we've patterned after our studies of the human brain seem to be also governing the behavior of gene regulatory networks which is how actually he finally makes the point that you can encode behavior and life experience into the, it's not the epigenome in terms of the, the molecules that are attached to it. It's a fundamental property of learning networks. And so it's crazy because what that means is that a lot of mutations are actually metabolically beneficial at one level they're just bad for the organism. But like all of these mutations are sort of hill climbing and they're climbing into bad optima most of the time. So that's the whole thing is that like in your body, like a lot of cancer suppression is like most of your body's ideas are bad. Most of, like most of the requests for promotion that your body's cells are making need to be turned down. And mm-hmm. so like it's hard not to sympathize with the man when I start thinking like that, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, but at yeah. any rate, you know, it's the, the article is called why it pays to play around and, and I'll send that in the show notes. Also this idea of how play and evolution are interrelated is of deep interest. I'm not totally sure if I picked up everything you were putting down in that last rant, 
mostly because I was having the the squirms to, to <laughs> pee, <laughs> but while also listening. But what my immediate wonder is is do you see and that you know I that this is like some kind of clean thinking bullshit that probably won't work. But do you see a relationship between what he's saying about the relationship between play and evolution and what we were talking about earlier with disruption and sort of trickster energy? Well, okay, so he has done research since. I think he talks about this a little bit in the book, but but he some of his research involved taking populations of bacteria with the green fluorescent protein in them, you know, so they, they glow under black light. And that's how you can study changes because you can create lab conditions that would favor the, the evolution of the yellow fluorescent protein. Okay. And so you can stress these bacterial cultures to different degrees and see if it affects the rate at which they innovate Right. And it turns out that yes, the populations subject to more strenuous selection pressure do in fact begin mutating at a higher rate and end up innovating, convergently innovating the path to the yellow fluorescent protein more frequently. So, you know, I think about the night that Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and how the only, like the the thought on my mind when I was able to get myself to stop laughing hysterically was that this is going to be a really good four years for the arts not in terms of funding but in terms of inspiration that there's like an I know why the caged bird sings quality mm. to times of history such as these and like you look at I talk about this in an article, another article I'll link to in the show notes. I think this one, in a way, this was the one I was I was saying I submitted to SFI last spring, kind of, you know, that was kind of uh, rebellious and questioning authority and so on. Um, but, it, but it's about this shift in epistemology that happens when things are changing really fast and how like it's, I guess, just closet psychedelic futurism in that psychedelics being a, a useful adjunct in yeah. the preparations for major historical change. Richard Doyle's argument, and I know you've had him on the show a few times. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. yeah. He's just such a hero to me. Even in the in the like singularity left by his rigorous non-duality practice, you know, like in the sense that there is no no Doyle, that there's still a Mobius strip with like a, a hole in the middle. And so like, God bless that donut hole. But, uh, <laughs> but so in that article... I mention, as many other people have observed, that jazz happened this way. You know, right. that, that the World War hit and that there was like trauma from the industrialization of warfare and the scale of warfare. And it worked its way out through a change in the, the sort of epistemic baseline in which people really believed that history was on a particular trajectory and it was permanently and fatally challenged. And so people responded to that with, in part, and you know, who talks about this really well is Phil Ford, the co-host of uh, Weird Studies. And he's got some lectures up from his musicology course at IU Bloomington on their P Weird Studies Patreon. And they're great. Like, and he, he gets into like the, the emergence of modern music as a response to that wound, mm. our expectations of reality and how like all the like serialism and experimentation with algorithmic 
composition and kind of a precursor to like a mathematician John Conway and the game of life, you know, like programming, like digital ecosystems type stuff, but doing it in, in music. And, you know, that's another thing Bill Thompson talks about, the artists preceding the savants. So, yeah, so like that whole thing, I feel like we're living through something like that right now, you know, where we've been surprised and like wounded and we're yeah. just like yeah. fumbling around to try and find our answers. It's a rich time, you know, it's like like when you spade up a really thick loamy piece of garden soil and like everybody everybody that's like living down in the soil is like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, man, because anytime a trauma is applied, especially a mass trauma on the psyche of millions and millions of people. What grows out of that trauma can sometimes be unexpectedly beautiful things and sometimes not. I mean, sometimes it leaves behind just a, you know, a festering wound and causes a huge spiraling, but sometimes it does result in the sort of jazz outgrowth, you know, some, which, which you, 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 there's no conceivable way you could have predicted, you know, pre-World War, that that would be one of the things that would grow out of post-World War America is jazz. But we're going to be dealing with new forms of jazz on the other side of the pandemic. You know, we're going to be dealing with new forms of ways, new coping mechanisms, new ways of skillful integration is really what it boils down to that we can't possibly foresee but that I think we, if if we have our energy tuned, just like you and I were interested in cryptocurrency early on, because I think we had our, we we knew enough intuitively to understand the repercussions, and that what was being done had reached some threshold where it was worth paying attention to, and I think if you if you're tuned in this way toward novelty, you're going to see these things. And if you get in on them early, you know, it's it's not necessarily going to be like crypto where it's going to make you rich or something, but it's going to give you an outlet. It's going to give you an increased ability to process the ever, you know, climbing levels of novelty that we're all grappling with, you know, for the better and for the worse. And that is a skill we all need to we all need to fucking give some attention to and need to make room for. Because if we're not doing that, I think it's going to get harder and harder to do two things. A, avoid oversimplification and just settle for canned answers. You know, that that's what I see happening with a good portion of the population. I mean, mm. that's what make that's what make America great again is. It's a fairy tale to insulate yourself from the complexity of reality. So, so that's, you know, conspiracy theories as well. Just, I need good guys. I need bad guys. Okay, so the bad guys, yeah, they're the elites, they're the pedophiles, they're the Satanists. I can understand that. So, so, so that's one option. And the other option is just protecting yourself with whatever you have and, and being in that sort of fearful state where you're also crippled. But I think if you are, again, tuned to the way the music is that maybe that's a good way to put it the way the music is evolving where if you've you've listened to a lot of music you grow accustomed to the sort of grammar of the musical process and you can <sighs> sense when thresholds are coming 
or uh, uh, crescendos are coming. You can sense when the you know minory bridge part is coming. And if you do that, you gain a sort of foresight that I think enables you to ride it at least a little bit more competently. You know, to that point, it's funny you say that because the first electronic track I ever composed was titled Ride It. And now I have to (laughs) include that for you in the show notes. But yeah, it was all about that. Actually, it was it was funny because it was a quote from my my now wife on her, I don't know if I, but it was on her, her first mushroom trip where she was talking about how you have to just write it. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's a perfect description of what I'm expecting the accelerating bonkersness of the rest of our lives to, to be. Yeah. You've got a good riff to you, man. What was I, I wanted to say one more thing about all of this, which is we completely glossed that in order to emphasize play in order to play more fiercely as an adaptation to an acceleratingly jiggly fitness landscape, then we have to accentuate the childlike in us. And there's a lot that has been said and a lot more that could be said about this being the sort of gospel of Thomas, one must be Mm. a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven kind Mm. of thing to drill an anchor real deep in it and then to lay flags a little bit more recently in the consciousness timeline. You look at the, the, the domestication of animals and you know we favor these childlike qualities in animals and mm-hmm. we have favored them in ourselves. Actually, there was a great episode of Tangentially Speaking a few years ago with uh, Daniel Vitalis on the show where Vitalis suggested that the gray alien is the human chihuahua and that fits into <laughs> so much of the UFO lore and mythos that these wow. are actually future human beings, you know, or some instantiation, some branch of the future human family tree that has followed the trajectory that we're already on. And in, in that way, it's like a, it could just be some sort of weird uh, projection yeah. Yeah. Uh, of our, you know, our, I, like I, our current models and expectations into a universe yeah. that is like way more hyperstitious than we realize and way more capable of returning to us somehow in some weird like networked ontology, the products wow. of our expectations, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's like our neutered, smooth pet version of a human being a neutered smooth it's like one of those bald cats you know that that's it's like the 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 future human version of a bald cat that right. is almost what it seems like a gray alien is well like we're already if you if you listen to james nestor's long now uh, foundation seminar he gave back in december i think uh, he talks about looking at the changes that have happened in the human skull over the last millennium and the changes that happen for like pugs that like, we're basically like the pugs, you know, like all of these modern breathing problem related chronic conditions that we have because there's been a, a measurable shrinkage in the human jaw. And he argues maybe like a, one of these learned epigenetic things that it's actually become, you know, encoded in the human genome somehow I, that's really contentious. And mm-hmm. I don't know where I stand on it, but like, certainly it's the case that like our human lifestyle is much more about soft processed foods now. And that's inarguable. And it's, it's really easy to see how that not chewing enough as children has an effect so that's there. You, there's the whole um, 
you still have to have the edge. Like even if you want to be a child, like an encourage childhood and, and delay childhood well into sexual maturity, like humans have already done and are guaranteed to do more, at least in some lineages, you still yeah. have to chew your fucking food, right? The whole, that's the other thing about the UFO lore about greys is that they're like broken and that's why they're coming back to collect samples and stuff because they're trying to re rehab their genetic lineage. I mean, just to take this completely off the deep end, like I love it as a, as a story because I think it really speaks to like, it's not just, we don't just get the technological transcendence uh, reflection from that story. We also get the oops, we lost things along the way and we really would like to reclaim and restore and become whole. And like that they're on that same sort of process as the rest of us as beings. So the point is chew your food. Yeah. And chew well, your yeah, ideas. Man. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you're stuck in that like puer eternus myth. You know, you're stuck in that you're that that ever a child, never initiated mindset because you're so afraid to commit, to become, to leave the comfort of the Shire, to say yes to the call of adventure, that it's easier to just remain that that puer ever a child way of being. And it makes sense that we'd want to delay that commitment. It makes sense that we'd want to delay the pain of becoming in that way. And there, there is a something to be said for waiting until you're ready. You know, I'm not this, I'm not a grind proselytizer. I'm not a just fucking jump, die for your art, just have a million babies. I've never been that person. <laughs> I've never been that person. But that said, there comes a time where you you must jump, you must initiate, you must grow up. And I think that there's a lot of danger. Like as as much wisdom as there is in the childlike, there's a lot of danger as well. You know, I think we we see this. James Hillman talks a lot about this beautifully is the sort of yes. myth of American innocence like this. We're, we're addicted to this sort of innocent, ignorant, stupid mindset that becomes easier and easier to see when you kind of look at the very clean symbolism. And you see it in the Make America Great Again shit too, man. This myth of a play of a time that never existed where everything was pure and perfect and everyone had a job and everyone had you know a stay-at-home wife and three kids and it never existed you know yes people were more likely to live in these ways but these ways had a sacrifice that was needed that we are now blind to they had psychological tolls that we are now blind to you know and we we don't see these things clearly when we're looking through what has been the predominant American kind of rose-colored glasses. And, and I'm not doing justice to what Hillman talks about in this respect at all. There, there's, I would highly, I mean, I, I ramble about Hillman constantly, but and, and I don't even remember where I, I read or listened to this, but I'm sure if you if you do a little Googling, you you shall find it. But it's it's brilliant stuff. It's brilliant stuff. And that Young also talks a lot about this this poor eternus kind of psychology. But yeah, my friend, man, we I mean, you know, we always go all over the place. I always end feeling simultaneously fed, but not 
confused is too confused is too harsh a word. I, I, I always <laughs> I always just wind up facing it all and being like, holy fucking shit. There's just so much. There's so much wonder. There's so much curiosity. There's so much scariness. There's so much to be excited for. And I think that, that that's the best we can hope for. Uh, another another James Hillman kind of way to frame it might be fuck answers. Bet good questions, fun questions are better than answers. And I feel like I come out of our conversations always with plenty of those. Well, man, all I can say is that whenever we speak, I'm impressed by the way you continue to sharpen your rhetorical skills in the active creation of wonder. It's a dedication that I find rather honorable. And I find myself, if this conversation is not evidence enough, often getting overwhelmed by what I imagine, you know, what I see in this world and wanting to share it and, you know, but mm-hmm. having kind of a, a morbid attraction to the uh, Gothic sublime than a lot of people in the eldritch of our world and getting a little wrapped up in the darker ends of visions. And so I just got to say how much I appreciate this mutual osmosis. Uh, And I hope that it does feel like you got fed because I would hate for the transmission to be like vampiric or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm really Mm -hmm. glad. I'm really glad for every opportunity I have to inspire you and anyone. And, uh, and yet here I'm just like, holy crap, this is such a crazy world. And yeah, and so I'm going to emphasize how lucky we are that we get to, to keep exploring it together. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, I totally agree. And I think that although that may sound well, everything you just outlined to some people, if you know, I, I have had one or two, reviews like the overwhelming majority of reviews are are great and everybody's sweet and i wish i could message them a lot of times like thank you so fucking much because that's such a nice thing to say but there is this very there is this rare sentiment of like i didn't get any answers every once in a while (laughs) and it's like if you if if you want answers go to fucking math class <laughs> you've you know? come to the wrong Be- show yeah because that's not what we need what we need is more curiosity what we need is more wonder what we need is not to feel like we're isolated in a tiny little sliver of reality that's familiar and rote and mundane and we know exactly what's going to be on the tv and on our netflix and whatever the fuck like we we don't need more of that and we don't need more scary chaos novelty because scary well, chaos novelty is the news. It's coming in from every goddamn pipe. So exactly. where do you go for more open-ended curiosity and wonder? And I'm not saying like that I am the authority on this, but I try to fucking at least provide a tiny little hour, hour and a half long smidgen drip drop of that per week. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that, man. I, and, 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 I, and it's a lesson to myself, too, because I was much more geared toward wanting to find where I quote unquote belonged when I started podcasting now years ago. And, and now I'm more sure than ever that I will never find that. And I'm <laughs> excited about it. I'm actually excited about it. 
Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. 